0: All right, I hope you have your Bibles in front of you. Uh, Open to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. All right, a few weeks ago we began this chapter, and as you have probably noticed, it is somewhat unique in that Paul tells the church that we have a oneness, we have a unity with Christ that really is far beyond what we could have imagined. First, we were told here, chapter 6, verse 3, that we were baptized into Christ Jesus. That word baptized, if you remember, is the Greek word baptizo, and it simply means to be immersed. Okay? Now, here in this context, he's not talking about water. He's talking about our identity, how we are identified with the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll notice there in verse 3 that he says those who were immersed into Christ were immersed into his death. And therefore, for those of us who have placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and are now identified with him, that means simply when Jesus died, we died, spiritually speaking. When Jesus died, we died. As you know, Jesus Christ was our substitute. Every single thing that took place when Christ died and he paid for our sin was as as if we ourselves were paying for it. God took what Jesus accomplished and applied it, if you will, to our account as if we ourselves had died. Right? And that's not all of it, though. Notice verse 4. He says, we were therefore, or you can also say, therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So, that immersion, if you will, into Christ as we just read there in verse 3, the fact that we are now identified with him is really all encompassing. Right? Yes, we have died with him, but Paul now says that we were also buried with him, and he says also we were also raised with Christ. Okay? But look at that last part about we have been raised with him. Notice the end of verse 4, what Jesus' resurrection corresponds to. Okay? It says he was raised from the dead, right? Through the glory of the Father so that we can now live a new life. I want you to understand that, okay? He was raised from the dead so that we can live a new life, okay? This is very important, folks, as this this concept carries throughout our entire section of Scripture here. After solidifying in verse 5 that, that we have been united with Christ in His death as well as in His resurrection, notice how practical it becomes in verses 6 and 7. Okay, this is kind of where that new life begins. Notice verses 6 and 7. He says, For we know that our old self was crucified with Him, so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now as we all know, folks, uh, none of us have uh, physically died or physically been buried or, or raised um, or raised from uh, the dead, uh, but we are identified with, we are immersed into the one who was okay? Spiritually speaking, this should have a huge effect on our everyday lives, okay? Simply speaking, we're not who we used to be. That's the point. Back in verse 2, Paul said, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer, okay? Here in verse 6, he says, our old self was crucified with him. The body of sin, he says, was done away with. He says, we are no longer slaves to sin. You know, if if you don't think that is huge, then you need to go back and read Romans chapter 1 and remind yourself of how completely and totally depraved you really are. If you remember Romans chapter 1, there are lots of words that describe us in our previous state. It'll tell you about that, okay? But... He says here, our old self being crucified, right, means we are no longer dominated. We are no longer controlled by sin. Okay, we have been freed from sin, verse 7 says. Okay, we were slaves to sin at one time. Literally, folks, we were slaves to sin. But no more since we are identified with the crucified and risen Lord. Paul Paul is describing a transformation that has taken place from the old self to the new self. Okay? Moving into verse 8, he now says, "Since we died, remember that if, that, that shouldn't be if, that should be since, okay? Since we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him." Now, I've stated this before, but yes, it is true that we died with Christ, and yes, one day we will live with him. That's a fact, okay? But as I explained last week, uh, our context is focusing on what took place in the past and how it has an effect on the present, our lives right now. And so when Paul says we will live with him uh, it speaks of living with respect to him or living by means of him. Okay, Therefore, we will live to honor him today just as much as we will live with him in the future. Okay, Don't forget, folks, our relationship with Jesus Christ, it started the very second that we placed our faith. In Christ, It wasn't like, okay, now you're saved and you can look forward to eternal life. Well, that's true, but there's a whole lot of time in between there. See, my point is this. We're called to live for him now until the day we are called to live with him. Okay, there's a big span there by the time we get to eternal life, but we still have the life we live now. And so we're called to live for him and honor him and what we do. And so finally last week, we closed with verses 9 and 10, which says, For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, it says he lives to God. So Speaking on, on some kind of really theological facts about Christ, Paul says because Christ was raised from the dead, in other words, because Jesus has defeated death, he says we know two things, right? Number one, he says he cannot die again. Listen, folks, as I said last time, there is no other occasion to make the atonement for sin. There is none, okay? Okay. And you want to know why? It's because the death he died was sufficient. We used that word this morning when it came to God's word. It's the same thing with his death. It was sufficient. Okay. God did not send Jesus to do a work that he couldn't fulfill. As if if Jesus, well, you can do part of this. We'll send you for the first half. No, that's ridiculous. He was sufficient in what he did. And number two since Christ was raised from the dead, he says that death no longer has mastery over him. As I talked about today, death is no longer Lord to that extent. Okay? So death no longer has mastery over him because he has paid the sin debt in full. It's done. He doesn't have to die again. It's over. He'll never die again. Okay? Because the sin debt has been paid completely and totally in full. Okay? It's over. He'll never have to die again. Which is why, by the way, the emphasis in Hebrews is that after he died for sin, do you remember this? What did he do? He sat down. I read like three verses of this last week. He sat down at the right hand of God. Simply meaning he was finished. All of the other priests will give, will give sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, and it'll keep going and going and going and going, even the Day of Atonement. Right? It just keeps going. But in that text, it specifically talks about how Christ died and he sat down. There was no seat in the temple for the other priests because they were never done. But Christ was finished. Right? What they could never do in all those, Christ did one time. See? And it was finished. Verse 2 adds to this and it says, He died to sin once for all. Kind of connecting that. He died to sin once for all for all. In Hebrews chapter 9 verse 12 it says he did not enter enter, he's talking about entering the holy of holies or the most holy place. It said Jesus did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood having obtained eternal redemption. Did you catch that? Listen, folks, if Jesus would have entered there by the blood of, 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 of goats and calves, it wouldn't have been fulfilled because that's all the, the regular priest could do. But that didn't happen. It says he entered into the Holy of Holies by what? His own blood, his own death, not the death of an animal. That animal could never take away sins, right? But, but the blood of Christ could, which is why he says he obtained eternal redemption. See, that's huge. His victory over death never needs to be repeated, ever. And lastly, at the end of verse 10, it says, but, after we talked about the death of Christ, it says, but the life he lives, he lives to God. And that is an important statement to remember because it's it's what's going to give Paul a jumpstart into our text this morning, which is gonna be in verses 11 through 14. And as he has done so far here in chapter six, if you've been here the last few weeks, Paul is gonna continue to talk, or I should say, to take the life of Christ and apply it to the believer, okay? As you know, throughout the text, he's talked about how Christ died, and then that means we died, right? He was buried, we were buried. Christ rose, it was as if we rose. He continued to take what Christ did and apply it to us. Okay, And then now, of course, at the end of verse 10, he says the life he lives, he lives to God. Well, what do you think that means for you and me? (laughs) Right? Well, he's going to tell us. We're going to read verses 11 through 14. In the same way, he says, For sin shall not be your master, because you're not under the law, but you're under grace. The first four words there, if you drop back to verse 11, it says, "In the same way." Now if you have the ESV, or if you have the NLT, it says, "So you also." So it just makes it a little clear, "So you also." Now, obviously, those words are connected to the end of verse 10, where it speaks of Christ, right? And saying, he lives for God, right? And he begins by saying, and you also, right? Same thing, he's taking Christ and also applying it to us. Now, if we were to, to just to take that alone as the challenge, Paul is saying, I want you the church, believers in Christ, to do the same. I want you to live for God. I want you to spend your existence for him. Okay? Or if you want, you can use the words of uh, 1 John 2, 6, where it simply says, I want you to walk as Jesus did. Okay? Yet, if you take, go beyond that one verse, if you take the first 10 verses there, or which is just 1 through 10 there in chapter 6. If you take those verses and you kind of put them into a small, concise little package, it will take it a little deeper, and it will remind us who we are and therefore why we live for God. Okay, It would say something to the effect of, here's the why, because, as we've already discussed, because you were dead in your sins. Okay? And now you are alive to Christ. Right? Why should I do that? Well, just look back at what we've just studied. That's why, is kind of what I'm trying to get at. Okay? Now, if this this sounds a little familiar, Paul said something very similar to the church in Ephesus. If you want to turn there, you can. In Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Still talking to the church, of course. He's just talking to a different church, the church in Ephesus. In chapter 2, it says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were all by nature objects of wrath. And then there's that word in verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us, there it is, alive with Christ even When we were dead in our transgressions. You can stop right there. Folks, we can really take that passage and apply it to our text this morning because it has the very same foundation who we were and who we are, and therefore what's expected, right? Because of who we are, what is expected, okay? Matter of fact, it's kind of the point here, if you're back in Romans, it's kind of the point here in verse 11. He says, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, the command, it is a command, the command there, count yourselves, or maybe your translation says consider yourselves, um, they're being, it's being used in this context uh, uh, to really... Um, to really mean to look within, right? To look within yourselves. One one Greek dictionary says, put together in your mind, okay? So when it says count yourselves or consider yourselves, dig down deep, look within, consider this in your mind. Now, in in today's words, you might say, you need or we need to know internally. You need to comprehend that you did truly die and are truly alive to God. He's saying you need to grasp this. You need to internalize this. You need to come to grips with this. This is very real. Right? Most of us here don't quite remember when that happened, when that took place, because it kind of was behind the scenes, right? But he says, guys, this is very real. You need to understand it, okay? And not only do they need to know this, as Paul has just talked about in the previous verses, right? which We've just spent the last few weeks talking about it. He says, he's trying to say, but, but take this to heart and truly realize that you are no longer under sin's control, Okay? You've died to Christ. You're a believer in Christ. You're no longer under that. You don't have to live this way. Okay? When I was a not when I was not a believer, I knew one way to live. That's it. And I did it really well. But now that you come to Christ, you you remember those days, but he says you don't have to do that anymore. See? I think it's hard for some people And maybe it was that way for these Romans, but I think it's hard for some people to come to grips with the fact that they are actually indwelt by the Spirit of God. Their old self was crucified, okay? And therefore, they can honor God with their lives. And and even when some sin uh, approaches them, they don't have to respond to that. There was a day when that's what we did. When sin approached us, we responded accordingly. He says, you don't have to do that anymore. See? Yes, there is still sin within us. We all know that. But it doesn't control us. We talked about this early on in in chapter 6, right here in chapter 6, verse 2, where Paul says very clearly, we died to sin, right? And then he simply says, how can we live in it any longer? We died to it. It's dead to us. How can we live in it any longer? You know what, folks? If if all we have is that scripture to remind us that we did die to sin, we don't have to live in it, great. That's all we need. Hold on to that. Live with that. Because that is rock-solid biblical truth that we receive by faith. We seem to to be able to believe things in the Bible about our future, and uh, the rapture, the second coming, the millennium, all those things. We we believe those by faith, but we also need to hold fast to these kinds of things that apply to our lives right now. You, he's saying, you're a child of God. You were crucified and you were risen with Christ. And as verse 4 says, we now have a new life. Figure that out, he's saying. Come to grips with that. And take that in internally, okay? And so with this, with this understanding, right, because this is what Paul wants them to grasp, he says, knowing this, okay, knowing this, look at verse 12. He says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires, Okay? Knowing what I just wrote down, knowing the text, knowing the context, they're reading this. He says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Now, Paul here is, is personifying sin, or if you will, he's, he's making it to be like, like it's a person. okay? Because at one time, it, meaning sin, had reigned over you, Uh, Sin used to be your master. You used to follow it. You used to obey it. You used to subject yourself to it, right? He's saying it doesn't mean it still today has to be that way. And this is the problem that Paul is pointing out, okay? And here's the main reason why. You see that word rain in that verse, right, the word reign, it is in the present tense, okay, which, which simply means uh, Paul is saying stop allowing the sinful nature to reign. Instead of saying, hey guys, I'm just giving you a heads up, do not allow your sin nature to reign. Too late. It's, it's in the present tense. It means it's already going on. It's already taking place. Stop it. Stop letting sin reign in your life. Don't you realize you don't have to do that? It's kind of what he's trying to say. Okay? Uh, I, I thought of as I was, I was reading this week, it, it, it reminds you like having a former boss. Okay? You don't work for that boss any longer. He doesn't go around and tell you what to do anymore. He has, he has no right to control you. He has no, no power over you unless you let him. Okay? or as Paul says right here about sin, unless you decide to obey its evil desires. It doesn't have power over you unless you let it. See? And because Paul said here that sin, okay? Notice that Paul said that sin is in your mortal bodies. Do you see that? That's saying it's made manifest in our physical actions. Okay, That sin is talking about in our mortal bodies. It means it's made manifest in our physical actions. And this, of course, as I just told you, is what Paul is trying to stop. He's saying this is the life that you used to live. That's the old unregenerate you. It's kind of like reminding yourself of what Paul told the church in Corinth. Corinth was a church that was a mess and sin. But what did he say? He says, guys, you are a new creation in Christ. If they're living in sin, he's like, what what are you doing? Right? He's reminding them of this, just like he's reminding these people here in the Roman church. Same thing. Okay? Similarly, P- Peter does the same thing. Now, I, I read part of this to you a couple weeks ago, but in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, as well as in verse 11, Peter says, look at you are a chosen race. You kind of like want to smack him upside the head, right? Psh. You, look, guys, you're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You, he says, are a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Did you catch that? So he's saying, guys, do you know who you are? Do you know what you're called to do? Right? Right? you're this royal royal priesthood, a holy nation, a chosen race. God has called you to proclaim his excellencies. He's pulled you out of this life of darkness and called you into this other life. And then he says, I urge you, therefore, as sojourners and as exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul same thing. He says, do you know who you are? Do you know what you're supposed to be doing? And then he calls them to stop what they are doing. (laughs) See? Now, it's possible that those in the church at Rome might have had this belief, because it was a belief at that time, but they might have had this belief that, that, yes, God had forgiven them, but he did not change their relationship with sin and that they didn't feel this would happen until they would go home and be with the Lord. Kind of like, okay, like I mentioned this morning, okay, you're saved, but there's no change in relationship with your sin. And some of them kind of believed that, okay? They didn't seem to grasp the fact that God had literally internally transformed them on the inside. The old them was dead. Okay? It's like, look at why do you keep resurrecting him? Have you ever heard that statement before? Your old self has died. Why do you keep resurrecting that guy? He's no good. David Needham, he says, until a believer accepts the truth that Christ has broken the power of sin over his life, he cannot live victoriously because in his innermost being, he does not think it's possible. And that would be true. That would be true. So what Paul does, as we move into verse 13 here, he's going to tell them forcefully. He's going to give them a command. Okay? He's saying here, I, I, I don't want you doing this any longer. But I'd like for you to start doing this. Right? You've heard me say that before. Don't do this, but do this. Right? That's how a lot of the Christian life is. The Christian life, sometimes people think, is, is nothing but negatives. Uh, you can't smoke, you can't drink, you can't party, you can't. No, 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 no. And many times when he says, I, I don't want you to do this, but I do, I, I would like you to do this. Okay, notice what verse 13 says. He says, do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. Now, as Paul begins this verse, I want you to know he phrases this using the the same tense of the verb that he did in the previous. In other words, when he says, Do not offer the parts of your body, he's saying, Stop offering the parts of your body. Once again, it's in the present tense, simply meaning this has already started. Okay? Most of Scripture, by the way, in case you didn't know, is reactive. It's not proactive. It's not gathering everybody around and saying, all right, guys, there's going to be some temptations out there, and I want you to let it head to. It's not that way. It's a response. It's a response to the screwed up lives that we sometimes live. It's the same thing here. So in the English, it simply says, do not do this. But in the Greek, it's saying, stop doing this. Stop offering your body to sin. Okay? So instead of of honoring God, they were using this body that he gave them for sinful purposes. Okay, Now, did you happen to notice that here, as well as in the previous verse, did you happen to notice that he brought up our bodies? Did you see that? He mentions our mortal bodies, right? He first mentioned sin reigning in our mortal bodies. And then, here in verse 13, he mentions parts of our bodies used for sinful purposes. Now, he chose to use these words specifically to inform us that it is in our bodies that we sin. Once we came to faith in Jesus Christ, our soul, our spirit, if you will, is unattainable, it is untouchable. Okay? But our bodies are mortal. And therefore we're still open, sadly, we're still open and available to sin. Everybody here knows that because you know that you still struggle sometimes, right? Sin cannot control us, we've talked about that already, but it can use us. Okay, one day that will change, right? It says, scripture says the mortal will put on immortality. Right? That will change what day. But in the meantime, we are still subject to sin. Now, here in verse 13, we're not told how they sinned. Right? We're not told uh, how the part of their bodies were used for sin. But we can just simply imagine it's no different than us today because they're human beings just like we are dealing with the culture, the struggles of life, and so forth. I'm sure it's no different than it is with us. So I just thought of a couple things. First thing that popped into my mind was the book of James. Some of you are going to go, oh, yeah, I know where he's going with that. There's this little thing called the tongue. It's a part of our body, right? James says it's actually a really small part of our body but causes a big problem, right? It's a tongue. You know what the tongue can do? That little tongue, it's a part of our body. It can can lie. It can slander. It can mock. It can make false accusations. It can use profane words. It can blaspheme, which basically means to slander God, right? Right? We know it can destroy relationships. James tells us in chapter 3, verse 6, it is a world of evil among the parts of the body. A world of evil. The little tongue. Remember how he talks about the rudder of a ship? you got this massive ship, but it gets turned by this little rudder. He says that's the tongue. See? Causes lots of problems. Lots of sins can come from the tongue. How about our hands? You ever think about that? Our hands can can physically hurt somebody, harm somebody, right? We can damage property. We all know the simple one. We can steal. We can kill. Take a life, right? It's almost, think about it, folks. It is almost limitless of what we can do with the hands when evil is in the heart. You know, if we just sat here in a group, we can just sit here for a while. How about our mind or our brain? That's a part of our mortal body, isn't it not? It is. How many sins are committed every single day that outside of God, nobody else even knows about? You ever think about that? God God knows. Too many, that's right. I think there are times that every one of us in this room would be embarrassed if people knew what were going through our minds. Our minds are jacked up sometimes, right? And by the way, this is not just supplied by the temptations of the world, but it's also what we feed our minds, right? It's not just, oh, well, the world is tempting me. No, it's part of it's your own fault. What are you feeding your mind What kind of movies are you watching? What kind of trash you fill in your head with those movies? What kind of magazines are you looking at? Maybe what kind of websites? What kind of filthy comedians are you listening to? Oh, but they're funny. I don't care. What are you feeding yourself? How about porn? That's a given, isn't it? We all know it. Garbage in, garbage out. That's what happens, right? Uh, Jesus talks about that in Matthew. You feed your body with this. You feed your mind with this. How do you think it's going to affect you? That's a no-brainer. Nobody has to answer it because we all know the answer to that. And you know what, folks? We can just simply keep going on and on and on, but I think we understand that how our bodies can be used for evil if we let it. I mean, what does Paul say? Paul calls it, or he says it could be an instrument of wickedness. Wow. Now, if you know yourself really well and you're honest with yourself, you would probably say, yeah, unfortunately, he's right. He's right. On the flip side, he says, look it. You have been brought from death to life, he says. Okay. Your old self has been crucified. You are now a new creation in Christ. You now have the Spirit of God indwelling you. He's saying, what do you think your response should be to that? Based on who you are, based on what God has done for you, based on what he has given you, what do you think our response should be? He says what? He says, offer those very same parts of your body as instruments of righteousness. Okay, And let me just say, and this is very, very important, it's impossible, it is impossible to do that without being equipped with the Word of God. Just, let's, just, let's just be honest here. You're not going to offer anything righteous because everything we know that is righteous is found in God's Word. It is impossible to offer anything yourselves as instruments of righteousness without the equipping of the word of God. That doesn't mean just, well, I went to church on Sunday and I set my Bible on the counter when I got home and then next week on my way to church, I'm going to scoop it right up where I left it. That's not going to cut it, okay? We must be equipped with the word of God. Scripture is the only source, folks. God didn't say, here's 50 books, read them. I mean, there are some good books out there. But those books better be talking about what Scripture already has talked. The only source we're given for a direction, for ideas, for wisdom. Okay? All that we need in order to be used by God. It's all there in Scripture. You gotta have it to live this life as an instrument of righteousness. Right? Second Peter 1 3, mentioned it this morning, tells us through our knowledge of Him, right? Through our knowledge of him, we have everything pertaining to life and godliness. Now, for the sake of time, shockingly, I'm not going to make a list um, of all the things we can go through as far as, uh, like I did with the acts of wickedness. Okay? Because ultimately, ultimately, we could just simply say it's the opposite. You know, to be an instrument of righteousness, we can look at all the things we talked about and simply flip them around. How do I be an instrument of righteousness? Obviously, you're empowered by God's Spirit. You have the Word of God. But instead of telling a lie, you would be honest. You'd tell the truth. And we can flip all those things around. So our tongues, our hands, our hearts, our minds can be used for his benefit and for his glory. See, you can use those same. Doesn't James talk about that? How in the world the tongue is used to praise God and yet slander man? Do you see how he talks about that? And he says, but he's telling it here, stop doing the one and you need to start doing the other. You can still use that instrument called your body. You can still use those parts of your body, but you need to really do it to glorify God. I think of um, uh, of Philippians 4.8. Now, in Philippians 4.8, many of you know it, or at least know of it. It it talks about, it says, think on these things. But ultimately, I'm pretty sure God's not going to get mad at me. I'm not adding to scripture here. I'm pretty sure God can say, do these things. (laughs) Right? Many of you know this. What does he say? He says, whatever's true. Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, he says, think on such things. Or if you will, you can simply say if you want, do such things. Live such things, however you want to apply that. It's the very same principle that we're talking about this morning. It's just Paul's not confronting them in the act and saying, stop this. He's just saying the positive. Here's what you need to do. And then I'm sure you guys know Romans chapter 12, verse 1. It's straightforward. I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, listen to what he says, to offer your what? Your bodies. There it is. Offer your bodies as a living Sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. But did you catch it, though? Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. See? Kind of brings me back to to chapter 6, verse 1. Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? And what did he say? Absolutely not. He says, we are instruments of righteousness, see? And lastly, I'll just make this real quick. Verse 14, he, he kind of finishes it and he says, for sin shall not be your master because you're not under law, but under grace. Really, the, the principle there is the very first part of that. He's just kind of finishing the section by saying, all right, listen, guys, sin, sin Is not to be your master. Or in this case, you might say anymore. (laughs) It's not to be your master anymore. Okay, which kind of cleans up the whole the whole thing. But it's it's almost like he's saying, guys, if you grasp what I've just said in these verses, if you understand and follow what I have just got through telling you in these verses, sin will not be your master. If you do these things, it won't. It won't be. If you want sin to be your master, he's basically saying then put yourself back under the law because that's what happens when you're under the law, right? The law is there to show you're a sinner. Put yourself under the law. All you're going to do is is come home and say, oh, man, I screwed up. I sinned. I said, oh, yeah, I sinned. I sinned. Because that's what the law was made for, right? Galatians 3.24. That's what it was there for, to help you to see you are a sinner and therefore lead you to Jesus Christ. So you don't want to go under the law. It's just going to keep telling you you're a sinner. And that's when he says here, sin's not your master. You're not under the law anymore. Right? If you're under the law, it is your master. But he says you're under grace. Under grace. So understand that. Understand he's saying that you've died. You've risen with Christ. You are a new person in Christ. You don't have to live that way. You don't have to follow the world. You don't have to remember and think and do all that you used to do. You can honor the Lord and live your, those very same body parts, if for lack of better terms, as instruments to honor God and to, to be an instrument of righteousness in the world that we live in. So it's a very clear challenge this morning, and it does bring it back to that understanding of what sanctification is, isn't it? Right? Living a holy life, that process of being made holy. Your old life, your old you, stop resurrecting it. Stop carrying it around on your back. He's dead. Get rid of him and walk in a newness of life is what he's saying. Let's pray. Lord, thank you uh, for the reminder. Uh, Lord, thank you for the challenge of your word. Um, Sometimes, you know, going through this, I think for everybody probably in this room, we think, yeah, I know that. I know that. And I know that. I know all of these things. But it's simply a reminder to say, but really, you know, do I know it good enough to where it's, it's, it's applied? Do I know it good enough to where I'm using it? Not just talking about it or understanding it, but am I walking in a newness of life? Do I sometimes catch myself resurrecting my old man? Do I have to be told, stop doing these things? Uh, Lord, help everyone in this room to honor you in our lives and, and, and to, to let the world see that you really do transform lives and that we would use our bodies as instruments of righteousness and ultimately bring glory back to you. And we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.